Uh, hey, we might not have met. My name is Nathan. Somebody say hi. hi. I didn't say say hi, Nathan, okay? Simon says say hi. Um, no, okay, not again. Uh, I'm on staff at Veritas. I, I love, love, love you guys. I love getting the chance to be here. We might not know each other. That's okay. Um, but we're going to open God's word together and try to see what he has for us, what he has to say to us. Um, we're in Habakkuk, right? Someone say Habakkuk. Yeah, not Habakkuk. Um, not have a whatever you got going on, but Habakkuk. Um, and, and tonight we're talking about justice. Someone say justice. justice. As I've been praying for you guys and thinking about tonight, and here's the reality. Our world has a justice problem. Yeah, some of you are like, finally, we're talking about justice because so often Christianity and the church can feel like they're quiet and they're these really loud voices wanting justice and why don't Christians talk about it enough? And others of you are like, oh, no, whoa. Like, I can't figure all this out. I'm, I'm a little exhausted. Like, people are fighting about this. I don't even know what to do. And, and you might even feel alienated or isolated because your views feel out of step with this cultural moment with what the people around you are saying when it comes to justice. Like, in, in our country, there are real issues of justice, individually, systemically, whatever, that we could spend a long time talking about. But I'm just going to jump over that because um, I, I don't want you to tune out because of that conversation, although it's a good one to have. Let's just talk injustice around the globe, okay? Sometimes it's easier to see the thing over, like, the dog poop in my neighbor's yard, and then they clean it up, and then I clean up my poop, okay? Is that, yeah? Anybody have a dog? Yeah. All right, all right, but be real. Did you clean up the poop or did your parents clean up the poop? I did, actually. Hey, good for you. One person, one, one strong lady here cleaning up dog poop. Okay, um, let, let's talk about the globe for a minute. Guys, um, did you know that the country of Iceland is, um, is actually slowly, over time, having fewer and fewer people with, with Down syndrome? Anybody know somebody with Down syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there are people that, um, man, even in this church, there's, there's a guy that worships up front, loves Jesus, is so kind and welcoming, has Down syndrome. But, but here's why Down syndrome is, um, is going away in Iceland. It's because if, if they screen for it and, and find out that a baby potentially has it, the doctors for years have pressured, pressured, pressured the mom that you need to, you need to abort this baby. That's the only thing you should do, that, that we don't need them in our society, they're going to be a burden on you, you should, you should abort that child. And, and they often would go so far as to say, hey, I already scheduled your appointment, show up tomorrow and we're going to do this thing. Like, that's what you should do. Like, wh whatever, whatever you might think about that issue in our society or how to deal with it, um, in fact, there are non-Christians even in Europe who have family members with Down syndrome who have been trying to speak into that conversation and go, hey, just so you know, those are people too. You can't just kill somebody because, you, because they might have a different quality of life than you. That's a justice issue, people being murdered because of, because of being born with, with Down syndrome. Or, if, or China for years has had a, a one-child policy that disproportionately affected women. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be really controversial for you, but abortion actually has killed more women in the world than men. Because in China, having a, a daughter was maybe less honorable. The daughter could maybe provide for you less, and, and you had to um, pay for wedding, things like that. And so Chinese families, because of the government pressure, would more often abort a daughter or, or give a daughter away or, or abandon her so that they could have a son. That is a justice issue. 
women in the room, you, you're awesome. You deserve to be born and have life and flourish and thrive, and not just because you were born in one country or another. That is a justice issue. There, there are free speech issues around the world that, that I would consider a justice issue. In some countries, like Russia, if you have an opinion that is different than what the, the government would have, you can be um, oppressed, jailed. If you're a minority person, um, you can be systematically oppressed and pushed down. There's freedom of religion issues. If you're, if you're in the Middle East and if you don't know Jesus but want to come to know him, in places that I've lived in the Middle East, if you convert to Christianity, your, your parents, your family could kill you and the government would kind of look the other way. Now, now again, I'm not, I'm not particularly bashing those places and cultures because actually what we're gonna see, those same kind of issues show up in, in our world. That's not a them problem. But I wonder if as we look over there and go, okay, there's some issues going on in our world. Maybe, maybe we might for a second pause and go, maybe we have some justice issues here too. And, and here's the tension that I feel tonight as, as I'm looking in the room. If you're not a Christian, I want you to listen into this. I don't want you to turn your ears off. The Bible's gonna have some different solutions than, than you might have initially thought of. But in fact, these solutions are, are deeper and richer and more world-changing than anything you can come up with. That's been proven historically by Christianity anywhere you look. We'll have that conversation later. But, but Christians tonight, here's what I'm worried about for you. I'm worried you fall into two, two categories. Some of you as Christians go, yeah, there's a justice issue. I'm gonna go. Let's fight. Let's make it happen. Let's charge. Maybe. But we need to slow down for a minute and actually sit at God's feet and invite him to tell us how and where and when. We're gonna to get to that in the text. Others of you are going like that. There is too much to deal with. Like, I'm just trying to get by. I'm trying to pass my classes sometimes, right? I'm trying to make a little money. Like, what is going on here? For you, for me in that situation, when I look out at so much, I could be overwhelmed. Tonight, I hope that God actually, through his word, challenges us, but gives us hope at the same time. Like, actually does something to, to make us more of a justice-focused people in a way that would honor God's heart and be empowered by his spirit. I, I gotta tell you guys, I, I don't have easy answers for you, but I do, I think, have true answers from God when it comes to our justice issues. So even if you're skeptical tonight, lean in and let's see what God's word has to say. Does that sound good? Someone say, yup. All right, turn your Bibles to Habakkuk 2. Not Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Um, last week, Jordan kind of got to help intro frame this series a little bit. Timmy preached on it. Um, in Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk is, is asking God these difficult questions. And in chapter 2, we're going to see he waits on what God's answer is. God is not afraid of our honest questions. He's not afraid of our earnest doubts. But, but the answers might not always be what we expect. Habakkuk chapter 2. And Habakkuk is this prophet who sees an, an enemy army coming. And he's got some questions for God about why God would allow an evil adulterous, idolatrous people, as crazy buckwild people to come and actually conquer a less evil, idolatrous people. Habakkuk chapter two, verse one, we're gonna see what does God do about evil and injustice and then how do we respond? Look at verse one. 
Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is Habakkuk talking about God. He says, I'm going to wait and watch and see how God responds. Someone say tower. He says, I'm going to wait. And he gives us this picture of a guy on a watchtower looking out like they would do if they were waiting for an army to come and attack. So it kind of makes sense because he's waiting for an army attack, but, but what he's looking for, what he's waiting for is actually God's answer. In some senses, he's asking God these questions. He's, he's almost treating God like God is the problem. If we get this twisted, we can get all out of whack and start to look at justice issues as if we have it figured out and if God's got to catch up to our timing. That's a dangerous place to be. But that's where he's at talking to the God of the universe and saying, all right, God, what you got for me? Verse two. We're gonna see this, this kind of big picture theme before God gets in the specifics. Verse, verse two. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads this. Now, he wants it to be clear, right? Write it so people can read it, but there's a sense of urgency. When you read it, you're gonna run. If we actually get this, it should produce urgency in us. Verse three, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. It's supposed to produce a sense of urgency, but at the same time, it might look slow to us. God's vision of justice might not fit our timeline or our timetable, but it's not slow when God looks at it. The one who orchestrates all of history is not dragging his feet when it comes to true justice. He's gonna tell us why why that is. Verse four, he's gonna tell us two kinds of people now. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Someone say puffed. Puffed up, right? Imagine a guy walking in with his chest out like this. Boom. If I walked up on stage like this, you should laugh, right? Because this looks a little silly. But God is saying there are some people whose response to justice in these matters is to be puffed up. I've got the answers and I've got the power, I've got the timing, I've got the way, let's do this thing, I've got it. That is arrogant, it's proud. And, and if there's anything that God hates and pushes back against, it's pride. It's us looking at ourselves out of proportion and not lining up with actually who God is and who he's made us to be. One kind of person is puffed up. There's a second kind of person. The righteous shall live by his faith. Someone say faith. The New Testament talks all about faith, and this verse is actually quoted over and over and over again. We're gonna get back to it. But there are two kinds of people, and both of them are trying to live and make a difference and move forward, but one is doing it out of posture of, I've got it, I know, let's go. And the other person is walking with God, and from that place, stepping forward. The word righteous just means being right with God, walking with God, walking closely with God. Look at verse five. He's gonna do some personification here. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Maybe some translations say wealth instead of wine there, or a, a different way to kind of read that Hebrew word is, is the one who pursues these things is puffed up. He's kind of saying there's certain people, certain kinds of people that are traitorous and arrogant and never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That, that's another word for death for them. Like death, he 
has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all as his own all peoples. He's both talking about this army that's coming to attack Israel, but he's also talking about injustice and evil right here. He's saying injustice is never satisfied. It wants more and more and more, and so there's no point at which we can go, man, we can let a little bit of injustice just kind of roll out, and that'll be fine because it'll stop eventually. That's like saying, you know what, I know they're an alcoholic, but they'll drink enough and they'll be, they'll be done at some point. Or one of the, the richest men in America about 100 years ago, John Rockefeller, was asked one time, how much money is enough? He, he owned personally about 1% of all of America's money, like true 1% or like dudes like, that's me, I am 1% done. They asked, how much is enough money? He said, just a little bit more. Evil and injustice are like that. There's not a point where we kind of go, yeah, just a little bit and, and it'll burn itself out. Like, no, it's greedy. As greedy as death and wants to gather from all people across the whole world. This isn't just an us problem. It's an all of us problem. But if it's an all of us problem, it's a you problem and a me problem too. God is gonna give five woes. Someone say woe. Yeah, this isn't like W-O-W, right? This is W-O-E. It's, it's, it's a word for mourn or lament or be afraid. He's gonna give five things that should cause us to say woe and actually give three pictures of what he does about injustice and evil. You ready? Buckle up, it's gonna get real. Verse six, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, this proud, arrogant injustice, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That's the first woe. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is directly historically a prophecy against Babylon, that the Chaldeans is another name for them, that were coming to conquer and had conquered a lot of people already. But it taps into something bigger that God is concerned about here. In verse 6, he says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. He's talking about this relentless greed and desire for more. Plundering nations, plundering from all across the world, this, this relentless, again, desire more and more and more to have. Like a dragon sitting on a pile of gold. It's never big enough. I just need more. The second and third woes are, are, are similar. They're variations on the same theme, th same theme here. Look at verse nine. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork respond. The first one is about this plundering greed, and the second one is about taking from others for security for myself. What the Babylonians would do is they'd conquer other people to, to enrich themselves and build bigger buildings, bigger palaces, bigger walls. God is saying there's a form of, of trying to get security for yourself that is actually greedy and abusive and manipulative to other people. Injustice can wear the mask of, of security for me at great cost to you. The third woe, verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. 
Behold, it's not, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? They're building bigger and bigger cities on the backs of other people, slave labor from people they had taken, or killing and conquering and taking money and stuff from people to build bigger cities. And in verse 13, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? He's saying at the end of the day, all of that status work, the bigger cities you're trying to build, that's not... It's not going to last. These first three woes we're seeing are, are variations on a theme where God is, is pointing out in the Chaldeans greed that takes advantage of other people to enrich itself, looking for security and, and safety by, by harming other people to get it, and building status, building bigger cities, bigger monuments at the cost of others too. Systems of injustice and evil, person-to-person evil, because one party is greedy and just can't get enough. We don't have a greed problem, do we? Like, I know some people do, but we don't, right? Like, you wouldn't have picked your major because of the amount of money you could make for it, right? Yeah, I was a linguistics major, so like that doesn't count for me, right? I'm good, cool. But you didn't pick the school you were going to because you're terrified of the idea of debt because it makes you feel out of control. You don't think about your life in terms of how much stuff you can have, do you? Or measure your worth compared to other people by the kind of clothes that you have or the car that you drive, the name brands you can own. And I don't care if your name brand is Nike or Carhartt, but, but all of us actually, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have this vein of greed in our hearts. And the kind of greed we have is willing to take advantage of other people or to build our lives on getting more and more and more. The status that you crave or the security that you crave the future that you long for. Actually, the ways that we go about it perpetuate and participate in systems of injustice. We could go into detail about sweatshops and labor around the globe. I'm, I'm not going to bore you with all that stuff, but, I, but you and I need to, for a minute, just acknowledge the fact that we are greedy. And if you look across nations in time, when you let greed run wild, it crushes people. And it crushes people in its way, and it crushes the person that gives into it. Friends, everything that you've been sold from advertisements from a young age, whether it was Sunny D or, or whatever, it's been trying to feed this thing in your heart that you don't have enough and you are not enough. Unless you have this. Unless you have that. Unless you get there. We have a justice problem and, and some of the, the cause of that is the greed living in our hearts too. And God begins to answer these woes actually by giving a promise. Look at verse 14. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Someone say glory. 
Glory has this connotation of weight, heaviness to it. And the picture that that God is giving Habakkuk is like God's weight and presence is going to be all over the earth one day, so much so that these these little monuments we're building to our status and our security, these little mounds of all the stuff we've been greedy for, God's weight is going to crush that. And you can spend your entire existence building up a mound as big as you want. One day God's glory is just going to crush it and expose it for nothing. The first promise God has about how he's going to deal with injustice is by his glory showing up and, and proving finally that all these things we've been greedy for are worthless. Those are the first three woes and a promise. Next, we're going to look at what God says about justice. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Keep going, verses 16 and 17. You'll have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. These woes are about exploitation. Someone say exploitation. He's talking about sexual exploitation. People getting other people drunk to look at their nakedness. In 17, he's talking about violence done to the land and to the people and to the animals. All of us as humans have this desire to get and to take from God's creation. And sometimes that looks like us not giving a rip that God created everything and not us. Other times that looks like not giving a rip that God created other people, that they bear his image. Again, in verse 15, he's talking about these attacking people who would sexually exploit and abuse other people. Sometimes taking them for slaves, or, or even here he's just talking about getting someone else drunk to look at them naked. In our day and age, we have a greed problem, but we also have a sex problem, don't we? Like you've been sold over and over again this idea that your value lies in how many people want to sleep with you. Like women, you've had that for years, and men, I think you're starting to feel some of the heat of that too. Like more and more men are starting to have body image issues because the ways we've exploited women, we're now starting to try to exploit men that same way. It's this jacked up thing where we decided that in order to actually value women better, we just had to devalue men the same way rather than actually valuing people. This shows up in some really clear ways. Global sex trafficking. There are more slaves today than there have ever been in human history. People being sold for their bodies and and exploitation. That happens in, in Thailand, and that happens in Iowa. There's a guy coming to our church who, who is working with an organization that just set up a safe house for women coming out of sex trafficking because there's a huge need here. But guys, 
porn is built on the back of exploitation. Porn is actually a mechanism by which people continue to be oppressed. Many of the people that make porn have been forced into lives where they're addicted to drugs, and so having to make porn in order to get their fix from somebody. Maybe they've actually been sold and forced to do the things that they've done. Maybe they've been abused. Actually, the, the statistics of the number of women involved in that that were sexually abused at a young age is staggering. If you have watched porn, if you're continuing to consume porn, you are helping modern-day sex slavery. It's not just a thing that's harming you, it's actually harming other people as well. Even the entertainment we've been sold is all about that. Do you think the women going on The Bachelor are looking for love? You know what I'm talking about? Every one of them is, right? That's just a fact. They want love. Come on, they're looking for the one. None of us here watch The Bachelor, right? That's not too close to home. Cool, good, cool. All of those women know what the bargain is, right? If I can keep him interested in me and attracted to me, I get more TV time. Looking for love, woo, uh, bring him home or whatever. Like, like they, they know the bargain. If they can sell themselves, then they get screen time. Maybe they get a show, maybe they get whatever. Maybe it's the comedy that you watch. And the main joke in almost every episode or, or every punchline is about sex. We've been trained and fed to believe that the exploitation of other people is normal, even natural. And yet, some of the words he uses here are, are shame. In verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The end of 16, utter shame will come upon your glory. I don't know if the word shame like rings true in your soul. I, I think we often misunderstand what that word means, but but I think you can feel that little like, that thing in your soul. Where in your relationship, you push the boundary or they push the boundary and, and at the end of it, you didn't really feel closer, you just felt shame. Or the things that you said yes to because you thought that would make you more valuable and desirable made you feel like less of a person. Or after watching porn, when you thought this will feel good, you actually felt like crap. Not just on a physical level, like a soulish kind of level, you realize there's something about the dignity that human beings have because they're made in the image of God that I am out of step with right now. I'm out of step with reality, but I'm doing what everyone else is doing, and they're calling it good. The second part of verse 16, God says what real justice looks like, what he's going to do. He says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. This picture is the cup of the Lord's wrath poured out. When he is the final judge will be the one that, that we will have to stand before and give an account to for the way that we've used his creation and his people, all people made in the image of God with dignity and value and worth. And this image of the cup of the Lord's wrath is used throughout the Bible, not just here. Psalms bring it up multiple times. Isaiah brings it up. Even Revelation at the end brings it up when Jesus comes back and justice is accomplished. 
God defines justice and God is the ultimate executor of justice. Here's the bad news so far, guys. We are a greedy people and we're a sexually twisted people. We're people that exploit each other in the world. There's one more category. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and and there is no breath at all in it. This is a really clear picture to the Israelites because God had told them over and over again, don't make a picture of me. You can't contain me by by making me look like a created thing. But all of the nations around had gods that they had made to look like people or, or animals or whatever. And they said, God is like that. That's how we can understand God. But even from the earlier pages of of the story of Israel, they're making a golden calf and saying, okay, this is what God's like, because he's strong and because he provides for us, but also a calf is something we can control. We can control that and fit that in our box. We want a God to fit like that. The Chaldeans, these these Babylonian people, were known for all their gods. They had gods for for different weather events and all of these things that, that ended up looking a lot just like the people that had made them. Today, a fifth of the world's population lives in India, which is a country and a society saturated, completely saturated by idol worship. Someone say idol. An idol is an image representing a god, a goddess, a deity, whatever, and it's supposed to help you worship and connect with that deity. You guys ever heard of the city of Mumbai? Guys, one of the best cricket teams I know comes from Mumbai, Mumbai Indians. What up? I had to name drop my Indians. None of you get that. That's okay. Sabrina understood. That's fine with me. Um, the, the name of the city of Mumbai actually comes, comes from um, somebody. Can you show me a picture here? That is Mumbai, the, uh, the mother goddess. And the city of Mumbai is named after her. This comes from a, a, a shrine in Mumbai to her. And you can see in front of her, Um, different offerings people have given. There's flowers around her. Have you you ever been to a Hindu temple before? Yeah, there's there's one up, um, I think, by the Twin Cities. There's another one in Cedar Rapids. But the way that you show your devotion to Mumbai is you, you give her stuff. You offer your food, you offer money, you offer flowers, you offer whatever you have. And Mumbai is a city that has some incredibly wealthy people, but also slums. People barely surviving, barely having anything at all. And, and what they've been raised and taught to believe is if you do not sacrifice to idols like the idol of Mumba or others, you had better be afraid. Because the gods will punish you, they will curse you, they will hurt your family. In fact, I heard a story from someone who had been a long-term missionary in India of... of an idol, a statue that he saw that was a giant mouth with, with human bodies in this mouth. And his friend was trying to explain to him and said, this is the God that you go to if you don't want your daughter to get raped. And if you don't sacrifice to this God, then there's a good chance your daughter will get raped. And so you have to give this God whatever you have so that your daughter doesn't get raped. 
this statue has no power to grant the things that it's promising. It was made with people's hands, and it looks just like another person. But people were grasping for some kind of hope and help and justice, and so they, they came up with something that, that looked and felt a lot like them, just a little shinier, and hoped and prayed desperately that that, that would save them. Some of you guys are, are hopefully going to Bangkok, Thailand. Can you show me the next picture? This is from 2019, three, three pictures here. Um, that's a, a statue of Buddha from Bangkok. And, and Buddhism in Thailand is kind of wrapped around the, the offering, the sacrificing to the Buddha. And maybe you've heard of Buddhism in terms of just, it's a lifestyle, it's a philosophy, it's a whatever. That's not the reality for the people in Thailand. At, at different shrines, smaller shrines all around the city, you give offerings and prayers, you give your stuff to the Buddha hoping that it will bring blessing and favor in your life because there's a lot to fear in the world. And you should be afraid if you don't have spiritual forces for you. You're in trouble if you don't offer to the Buddha and to other forces. Mumba has a city named after her. This picture of Buddha dominates the landscape in Bangkok. Now, we don't have a statue like that in Cedar Rapids, right? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah? No? Okay, cool. But look at, okay, Mount Trashmore doesn't count, so help me. <laughs> my God is the God of trash. Okay, <laughs> I will offer my trash there. Uh, end of verse 18, pull it back. Look at verse 18. It's maker trust in his own creation. It's make your trust in his own creation. Have you ever trusted in your own creation? Like, have you ever made life about something that was actually a, a human-created thing? The, the word for worship is related to the word worth. Worship is saying this thing is worth it. Have you taken something in your life that was less than God and said, no, this thing is worth it? A career, a relationship, your chill time. Maybe even this question would be helpful. What things compete for the stuff that you know you should be doing like a Christian? Like, what would stop you from coming to salt? Not a lot, right? But if everyone's going out for ice cream, I mean, <laughs> oh, got to get ice cream. What stops you from getting up for church in the morning? Is it the party Saturday night? Like, what stops you from coming to connection group? Is it people's opinions and your reputation that have a greater weight in your mind where you say, no, no, it's more worth it for them to think certain things about me than it is for me to go to connection group? Even some of the just, like, basic stuff of Christianity, reading your Bible, what, what are you saying is more worth it than that? Is it another swipe on Instagram? Man, I just never have time for it because I'm laying in bed for two, two and a half hours every night. Just checking on social media. If we're honest with ourselves, we can look across the world, but we can also look in this room and go, we actually have an idol problem. We've taken created things, maybe even good things, and put them in a place of too high worth in our lives. Look at verse 20. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's character. Mumba has a city named after her, and the Buddha has a statue covered in gold in Bangkok. But God sits over the entire earth. And there is not a square inch of this earth over which God does not say, this is mine. God's character is such that he will not be taken off his throne by any of the stuff you're putting there, but you might miss out on him if you go looking for value and help and worth in lesser things. As I was studying this, as I was praying for you guys, I just realized some really bad news. This is about historically the Chaldeans, these people that were puffed up and greedy and exploiting people sexually and worshiping false gods. This is about them. And this is about me too. And if you're honest with yourself for just a minute, this is about you as well. See, one of the hardest parts about talking about justice is that all of us instinctively think we're on the right side of justice, and when we come face to face with God's definition, we are not. We deserve the wrath of a just God for the ways that we've been greedy and gathering more stuff to make ourselves feel significant and safe. We've used other people to make ourselves feel valuable and we've worshiped created things rather than the creator. All of us. Here's the thing. Verse three, verse two and three, write the vision, make it plain so that he may run who reads this. This should cause a sense of urgency in us. It says, for the time the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Before I was preaching tonight, I was in the back worshiping with you guys, and I was thinking about this line, and I realized something. God has waited patiently before his justice would come, before he would wipe out at all evil, all evil systems, all oppression in the world. He has actually waited and seemed slow because he wants to offer you the chance to escape the wrath you deserve. Hear me now, the reason why God might be delaying in his plan to bring his glory down to pour the cup of his wrath and to show himself on the throne is for you to not be on the wrong side of his justice. The three things we saw God say about himself that his glory would fill the earth, that the cup would be poured out, and that he sits on his throne. Guys, those find, they actually find their answer in Jesus. Someone say Jesus. Jesus invites men and women from every nation around the world to come to know him and to be saved. When we look on Jesus and when we trust him, we actually reflect God's glory. So even now today, there are men and women in Mumbai and, and Bangkok and Cedar Rapids who are reflecting the glory of God because Jesus has saved us and invited us into his glory. He looks at our greed and Jesus gives of himself selflessly. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you better than what you could want for yourself. It's to taste God's glory like you were made for. The cup of God's wrath poured out. Jesus in the garden before he was crucified prayed about that cup. 
He said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, do it, but not my will, your will. Because the will of the Father was that Jesus would drink the cup of wrath instead of you. Jesus doesn't come to exploit you or use you. He actually tries to invite you to the dignity you were made for. But he does it through the cross, where he was hung naked and exposed and ashamed before the world. His body exploited even though he didn't deserve it, and in exchange he wants to clothe you in God's righteousness so you wouldn't feel shame, so you would no longer be addicted to using other people in relationships or on the internet. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath for you if you accept him. And this idol worship, Jesus actually is the presence of God in flesh, And what he did when he died was he tore the curtain in two in the temple that separated God's presence from God's people. And he says, now, if you're with me, God's presence is in you. One day God will come back and there won't be a need for temples or churches or anything because his presence will be with us. But today, people are filled with his presence when we trust in Jesus. Today, God sits on his throne in our lives as we give more and more of ourselves over to him and his true vision of justice. These find their beginning in Jesus and they find their end when Jesus comes back to accomplish all of these things. How does God deal with evil and injustice and oppression? He starts in the personal work of Christ But when Jesus comes back a second time, he won't come as a suffering servant to die. He'll come back as a conquering king. When Jesus comes back, all evil systems and all greed and all exploitation and oppression will be ended. Full stop. Jesus wins. And this earth will be what it was made to be. So what about you? There were two kinds of people, the puffed up and the one living by faith. Which one are you? Like tonight, hear me now, which side of God's justice are you on? Are you still trying to do it your own way and participating and pushing on these systems of evil and exploitation? Or have you bowed your knee to the king and his justice and have you accepted Jesus' offer? that he would take the wrath that you deserve, he would take the justice so that you could be made right with him and you could be part of his renewal. Which side are you on? And if you're a Christian tonight, we have an invitation. We need to look back and repent of the ways that we've participated in greed and exploitation idolatry. We need to repent and turn away from those things, but we also need to repent of thinking that we know better than God when it comes to justice and his timing. Look back and repent. Turn from and turn to God. And then here's the invitation. Here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to learn God's promises. Write this down. Learn God's promises. Let God define justice And actually listen to God's timing because he's king and you're not. There's a tension in my soul as we try to wrap this thing up because what I want to do is I want you to, to invite you into a radical kind of Christianity that confronts injustice. 
but my worry is that we will define justice more like the world and miss out on how God defines it. And we'll run at the pace that we set as opposed to the pace God set. Because throughout church history, Christians have been justice bringers. In India, wives used to get burned when their husbands died so they get reincarnated together, and Christian missionaries helped stop that happening because they said, no, these women deserve justice, not burning to death. In China, women's feet were bound and mutilated for life, and Christian missionaries actually said, no, stop this. Mutilating them isn't beautiful. They actually have dignity and beauty. Today, Christians are fighting sex trafficking around the world. And in fact, a Christian in England, William Wilberforce, helped end slavery there because he looked at black people and white people and said, all of us are made in the image of God. All of us have value and dignity and worth. But the way we accomplish justice is first we let God define justice. And then we march forward on our knees, begging him to tell us when and how and where. I want to invite you into God's justice, but I don't want you to run. I want you to kneel and let him tell you where to move next. What will God's justice look like on your campus? I think it would start by looking like you changing the way you look at people and yourself. I think it would move life to life as you share the gospel that people can be made right and renewed. It, it would look like transformation as people come under the kingship of Jesus through hearing the word of his reign in the gospel. And then wherever he takes us from there, let's go. Will you march forward on your knees with me? In fact, right now, I'm gonna invite the band up. I'm gonna kneel. If you wanna kneel, you can kneel too. I'm gonna pray. Father God, as we hear about your justice, God, I confess that I, I have lived the way this, the rest of the world has lived in greed and in exploiting people and in, in making created things, putting them in your place. God, I've participated in this stuff and I've pushed it forward by my, by my heart being out of line with you my eyes being off of you, not trusting you. Tonight, as we repent together, would you fill us with your spirit to, to be able to wait and trust you and move forward when you invite us to? God, there are gonna be times where the men and women in this room are confronted with injustice in their lives, where they're out of step with their peers because they're waiting on you instead of just charging after it to, to attack and to tear down? Would you teach us to, to be people that live by faith? The righteous will live by faith. Our faith is in your character and your promise and your plan. Jesus, our faith is in you. You save, you restore, you bring hope, you bring life. We trust in you. And tonight we offer worship to you and ask you to change our hearts and our lives and show us what you're doing in the world around us. We praise in your name. 